So the title of the message this morning is Barabbas, A Portrait of Us All. And actually, this is one of the first sermons I ever preached, probably back in about 1982 or so. So what would that make it, 34 years ago? But I, I don't even have my notes from that. All I'm going is just from memory. I remember that was the title of my message. <laughs> and we're going to do something very similar to that 34-year-old message today. So the first thing we need to do is open up to Luke twenty-two sixty-three. And we're going to read this long passage, and then we'll get right into it. Lord, I pray you'd bless the reading and the opening up of your word today. I pray especially that the gospel would come with sweetness and power to each heart, no matter if we are saved or lost, that it would have its way. Lord, would you open up our eyes and open up our hearts to the gospel of Jesus, to be thrilled again by the message of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke twenty-two sixty-three. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and they were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. 
Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city, and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, and, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. We have been following Jesus slowly and methodically on the way to the cross. As we pick up the story here in Luke 22, this is the final night before Jesus' crucifixion. Earlier that day, he has already spent the evening with his disciples, and he had been teaching them many things. We have those things recorded in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. Also on that night, we have Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he prays for his own in John 17. In addition to that, on this very night, Jesus has eaten the Passover supper with his disciples. He has instituted the Lord's Supper. He's washed his disciples' feet. It's been a very, very busy night. He's then sang a hymn with his disciples, and then he purposely set out to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was there in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus, under this great weight of the sin of the world and the coming wrath of his Father against that sin, falls on his face in an agony of soul, And he cries tears and cries out to his father to let the cup of the wrath of God pass away from him. He says, if you're willing, father, let this cup pass away. If it's possible, remove the cup. But after praying three times, he realizes it is not possible and it is not the will of the father. And so resolutely he stands up from that place of prayer and he tells his disciples, let us be going. The one who betrays me is at hand. And so he makes his way then to the place where his arresters come and arrest him. Now, that begins really the trial of Jesus at that point. Because Jesus is taken, first of all, to Annas. Annas is a retired high priest. He's the one who has all the power within the the priesthood. Even though he's been retired for 20 years and his son-in-law is the current high priest, he's the one with the reigning power. So he's taken to Annas' house first. They look for a reason to condemn Jesus there. Then they they take Jesus to Caiaphas' home, who is the current high priest, and they go through everything again at Caiaphas' home. Then they go to Pilate. Then Pilate ships Jesus off to Herod. Then Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and Pilate finally has to make a decision on what to do. What I want you to notice about all of this is that this was a travesty of justice. This was a kangaroo court. There was nothing just about the proceedings and the verdict that was sentenced on Jesus Christ. There was nothing just about it. They broke all the current laws of jurisprudence that night. And I'm going to list a few of those for you. Number one, according to their laws of jurisprudence, no one could be arrested or tried at night. 
Well, that's when the whole thing took place. Number two, the Jewish council could not initiate charges, but could only consider charges brought by an outside party. Well, that didn't happen here. It was the Sanhedrin that initiated the charges against Jesus Christ. You see, let me just interrupt myself here. The Sanhedrin only wanted Jesus dead. And they're looking for a way to nail him. It's not like they had legitimate charges that they were following up with just laws of jurisprudence. They just want him dead because he's a thorn in their side. Let's go back to this. Number three, the initial proceedings were supposed to take place in the temple. But in this case, they took place at the high priest's home. That's another violation. Number four, no person was ever to be tried without a defense counsel. Jesus had no defense counsel. There was no defense attorney representing him. Number five, the defendant was supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Well, they assumed he was guilty and were just looking for a way that they could nail him. Six, no one could be convicted on the basis of testimony against himself. That's exactly what took place. We're going to... We'll get to that later, but let me just say that in Matthew's gospel, the high priest adjured Jesus by the living God to tell whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. So he put Jesus on the stand. Jesus had to say either yes or no. He was put under this, this vow. He had to say what was true in that case. And so he was forced to actually incriminate himself. Number seven, conviction required the testimony of at least two reliable witnesses whose testimony had to agree. They had to affirm that their testimony was true on the basis of direct experience, not hearsay or presumption. They had to identify the precise time and location of the event about which they testified. False witnesses were subject to the same penalty that the accused would suffer if convicted. Do you understand that if they're saying that he committed a crime worthy of death and they are proven to be false witnesses, they are going to die. Now, the interesting thing is they couldn't find any two witnesses that could agree about any crime that Jesus committed. They're breaking another one of their own laws of jurisprudence. Number eight, in capital cases, the death sentence could not be carried out until the third day after it was given. Jesus was executed within a few hours after the offense was was determined. Executions were not to take place on a holy Sabbath or a festival, or on the eve of one. This took place on the Passover itself. Another violation. Number nine, if a council voted unanimously for conviction in a capital case, the accused was set free because the necessary element of mercy was presumed to be lacking. Now, the Sanhedrin had 71 members, the high priest and 70 others. Every one of those, according to Matthew's gospel, agreed that he should be put to death. It says here, one of their own laws was that if everybody unanimous, unanimously agreed that someone should be put to death, he was to be set free. Well, that didn't take place either. And I've only mentioned nine of them. You can go even deeper than this. This was a travesty of justice. There was nothing righteous about this whole affair. And not only that, but Jesus was treated shamefully during this whole experience. Go back to Matthew 26. And we're going to be looking at various places in the Gospels today. But Matthew 26, verse 67. It says, Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists 
and others slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, you Christ. <laughs> who is the one who hits you? In this whole scenario, we, we see some of the mockery that was taking place. Some of the shame that Jesus had to experience. They spat in his face. If that wasn't bad enough, they beat him with their fists. So they punched him. Then they slapped him. A, a gesture of disrespect. Slapping, spitting, beating. Then they put a blindfold on him so he couldn't see. They said, hey, prophesy to us. Which one of you hit you? Bang! In the face. If you're a prophet, tell us. Who's hitting you? Now, over in Luke 23, it says in verse... I'm sorry, Luke 22 it should be. Verse 63, it says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. Verse 65 says, And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. So they were mocking him. They were blaspheming. They were showing utter disrespect and scorn. And it makes me think of, what did Jesus experience before he came to this world? How did the angels of God treat the Holy Son of God? With the utter reverence and worship ceaselessly by all the host of heaven. And then Jesus comes to this sinful world and he's treated with, treated with shame and disrespect and mockery and scorn and blasphemy. We see just how evil human beings can be when we come to the mockery or the, the trial of Jesus Christ. Now, I also wanted to point out to you something in Matthew 26, verse 63. Matthew 26, 63. It says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. I'm putting you on oath now to tell me the truth. Tell all of these people the truth. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, I am the one prophesied in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God, and I'm going to return with power. Then the high priest tore his robes. Now, why would a high priest tear his robes? It's because he believed the blasphemy had just been committed in his presence. And he said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. Okay, so the crime that they believe that they're going to nail Jesus for is the crime of blasphemy. And that was a crime worthy of death in the Old Testament Scripture. Of course, it's only true if Jesus was not the Christ, the Son of God. And they all assumed that he was lying, that that was not the case. The truth is that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so this was not blasphemy at all. Now, they realize that their charge of blasphemy will never stick with the Roman governor. The Roman government, when they came in and began to rule over the Jewish nation, 
took away the Jews' right to capital punishment. So the Jews were not able to execute anyone. If they believed someone needed to die for their crime, they had to go to the Romans and submit their case to the Romans, and the Romans would perform the execution. But what are they going to, what's going to happen if they go to the Romans and say, this man has committed blasphemy? What are the Romans going to do? They're going to laugh because they don't care about blasphemy. <laughs> they don't care about any theological disputes the Jews have amongst themselves. They only care if somebody is upsetting the Roman peace. They only care if somebody is a threat to the Roman government. Government. And so that's why in Luke chapter 23, they change the crime when they go to Pilate, and they have a whole different story now. Let's take a look at that. In chapter 23, it says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, He committed blasphemy. No, that's not their accusation at this point. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Now you know why that would be a threat to the Romans. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So he's in competition with Caesar. He's in competition with Herod. He's another king. He's misleading the nation. He forbids people to pay taxes. And look at verse 5. They kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. He stirs up the people. He's seditious. He's going to start a revolt, an insurrection. You've got to do something about this man. He's trouble. He's a threat to the Roman government. Of course, all of those were lies. You know, did, did Jesus forbid people to pay taxes to Caesar? Of course not. <laughs> when the whole issue came up, he said, see that inscription on that coin? Yeah, it's Caesar. Well, then give Caesar what is Caesar's and give God's what is God's. He told them to pay taxes, even to this foreign power that was exercising the hated domination over them. Uh, no, he was not misleading the nation. He was teaching the nation God's very truth. Yes, it's true that he said he, that he himself is Christ, but there's no crime, and he's in no competition to any earthly king. He was not subduing anybody or misleading anybody. Um, and as for him stirring up the people, yes, he had crowds that followed him, but he never stirred them up to do anything unethical or immoral or ever to revolt against the government. Jesus never did any of those things. So these are trumped-up charges. But one thing he does say in verse 5, he stir, they, the people that came to Pilate said, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee. Bingo. <laughs> Something's going off in Pilate's mind. Oh, Galilee. Really? Well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. You mean he was misleading the people and stirring up the people up there in Galilee? Wow, maybe this is my ace in the hole. Maybe I can get rid of this guy. You know, Pilate really didn't want to deal with Jesus. He thought he was innocent the whole time, but... He didn't have the guts to say that and release him. He just didn't want to deal with this whole affair. But when he heard the word Galilee, he started to have a little bit of hope that maybe he didn't have to deal with this. Maybe Herod would. And so he sent him up to Herod saying, hey, he's in your jurisdiction. He's from Galilee. You're the king over Galilee. You deal with this situation. So Jesus goes up to Herod. And Herod's happy that Jesus came because he's always wanted to see a, a sign or a miracle 
But Jesus didn't do a miracle in his presence. Jesus wouldn't even speak in his own defense in front of Herod. And so what do they do to Jesus at that point? They make fun of him. They dress him up like a comic king. They put this gorgeous robe on him. It doesn't say it in Luke, but in Matthew it says they put a crown of thorns on his head. And they all bowed down and said, Hail, King of the Jews! It was a big joke. Beating him on the head with a reed. It's a big joke. He says he's a king. Well, let's treat him like one. We'll dress him up. We'll play dress up. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate has this whole problem again put into his own lap. He's got to make a decision. He has to do something. He believes he's innocent. He doesn't think that he deserves to die for any particular crime. And he's got to make a decision. But then he thinks, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about that tradition that the Romans have of releasing somebody at the Feast of Passover? Evidently, for a number of years, the Romans had taken a Jewish prisoner and they just released him as a sign of goodwill. The Jews hated the Romans and the Romans were hoping that by this show of goodwill, they could ingratiate the Jewish people to them by saying that, hey, they do have a heart, they, they do show mercy, they are showing compassion. And so it had become a tradition. And Herod's thinking, okay, maybe this is my way out. Maybe I can release Jesus Christ. And so he goes before them and he says, well, there's this guy named Barabbas. He was going to go to that cross today. And there's Jesus. Who do you want me to release for you? And of course, he expects them to say, release Jesus. Because as we're going to find out in just a few minutes, Barabbas was a hardened thug. He was a criminal, notorious. He expects everybody to say, release Jesus and kill Barabbas. Barabbas deserves it. But instead, the chief priests were able to incite the crowd to call for the execution of Jesus and the release of Barabbas. According to some historical incidents, it's likely that Barabbas' name was also Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. And the NRSV version of the Bible in Matthew 27, verses 16 and 17, instead of calling him Barabbas, he's called in that version Jesus Barabbas. If that's true, Pilate is saying, who should I release to you? This Jesus or that Jesus? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? Which one do you want? And they cried out, Barabbas! Well then, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him! Which leads us to consider this man called Barabbas. And that's what I want to take the bulk of our time today to do. I want to meditate upon Barabbas. He's an interesting character. He only comes up for just a brief few verses of the Bible and he's gone forever. But the interesting thing is he comes up in every gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this story with a little bit different of an angle, a little dif bit different perspective, but they all focus on this man. So there's something important about this story of the man Barabbas. And I want to ask you three questions. How did these two men live, Jesus and Barabbas? What did these two men, two men deserve? 
And then finally, what did these two men receive? First of all, how did these two men live? What do we know about Barabbas? Well, if we looked at Matthew 27, 16, this is what it says. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. What do we learn about Barabbas? He was a notorious prisoner. What does the word notorious mean? Hmm? Repeat offender? Okay. Well known. Famous. Every, his, his name is on the lips of every person. He's notorious. This isn't just your run-of-the-mill average criminal. This is a guy who's well known throughout all of Judea, especially Jerusalem, where he's being held in prison. He would have been on America's Most Wanted if he were alive today. Maybe you would see his mugshot in your local post office. He was sort of the Osama bin Laden of the first century. Everybody knew his name. Everybody knew what he had done. He had been tried and convicted, and he was just a thug, a con man, and he was a famous thug. Not only was he notorious, but Luke 23.19 says, He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city. So he had committed insurrection. That means he had revolted against the Roman government. In the first century, there was a group of Jews called the Zealots. In fact, Jesus had a disciple, Simon the Zealot. (laughs) Interesting that he would actually choose this guy to be one of his disciples. But Barabbas was probably a zealot. These zealots hated the Roman government, and they were trying to stage a revolt, a revolution to overthrow the Roman government and free the Jews. And so they would carry these daggers under their cloak. And when they went into dark alleys, if they happened to see a Roman soldier, they would slit his throat and run. And so there were, a murder was a common thing for these zealots to try to actually perform these coups. So Barabbas was probably a member of the Zealots. Not only had he sought to um, commit insurrection, not only was he a rebel against the government of his day, but he was also convicted of murder. We find that also in Luke 23, 19. He was thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder. Who do you think he probably murdered? Probably a Roman. Probably a Roman soldier. This guy's a cold-blooded killer. He's a hardened man. He's callous, unfeeling. It's interesting when you study serial killers, they seem to show no emotion for their crimes. And perhaps Barabbas was a man like that, that he didn't feel guilty, he didn't feel bad, he didn't feel anything. A lot of these serial killers are like, they don't feel anything about the murder, they just do it. He seems to have no respect for life. And his name would probably have struck in fear in the heart of every person that heard it. Maybe he would... It's like hearing the word Charles Manson or Ted Bundy today to hear the the name Barabbas in the first century. So he's notorious. He has committed insurrection. He has committed murder. And we have one final little note about him in John's Gospel, chapter 18... Verse 40, these are the last words of John 18, verse 40. Now Barabbas was a robber. To top everything else off, 
If insurrection and murder are not enough, he's also a robber. He robs people. Maybe it's to support this, uh, this goal of overthrowing Rome. I don't know. But he takes from other people and he lines his own pockets with it. Do you know the Bible has absolutely nothing good to say about this man? If you read every single verse about Barabbas, it's all negative. It's all sinful. It's all wicked. It's all ungodly. So that's how he lived. He lived as a notorious criminal, trying to overthrow the Roman government, committing murder and robbing people. Now let's turn our attention to Jesus. How did Jesus live? What did Pilate think about Jesus? Well, this is really fascinating because Luke is careful to record over and over and over that everyone, it seems, believed in the innocence of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look. Chapter 23, verse 4 of Luke. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you have made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. You see, over and over they're saying the same thing. I find no guilt in him. Herod found no guilt in him. I'll punish him and release him, but I'm not going to kill him because nothing deserving death has been done by him. And then go down to verse 22. He said to them the third time, Why should I crucify him? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. And if Pilate's testimony is not enough, go down to verse 41. And we see the testimony of one of those thieves that was dying on his right or his left side. He says, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. What about the Roman centurion who actually committed the execution? Verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Or what about the testimony of Judas Iscariot? I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Or what about the testimony of Pilate's wife? Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I've suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Every place you go, people are confessing that he's innocent. Now, there is a difference between being innocent and being righteous. Innocent means you just haven't done anything wrong yet, like a baby. He's never consciously committed a sin, even though he has a sinful nature. But Jesus goes further than just being innocent. Jesus was absolutely and utterly righteous flawless, spotless in every way, never having committed sin. And this is something as Christians that we need to affirm. It's shocking to me the number of people when I witness to them and I ask them, do you think Jesus ever committed a sin? It's shocking to me the number of people who say they're Christians who said, yeah, I think he did. I think, what? <laughs> Double take. But many people think that Jesus committed sin in his lifetime. What is the testimony of the Bible? Concerning Jesus. Well, 
2 Corinthians 5.21, which is a verse that many of us have memorized. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He knew no sin. He knew it not. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm going to share several of these with you. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15, which is another very well-known passage of Scripture, says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Or, just go over to Hebrews 7, just a few chapters over, and look at verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Or again, Peter gives us his testimony in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth who committed no sin. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The just. The just. What does the just mean? What, what do we mean by that? The righteous one. The righteous one. Christ is the righteous one. Or John gives us his testimony in 1 John 3, 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So this is the uniform testimony of Scripture. Everywhere you look, all of the Bible writers speak with one voice. Christ is sinless. He was not born with a sinful nature like we are, and He never committed actual transgressions, ever. He always fully conformed His life to God's holy law, never once violating His law in any way. Thought, word, or deed, even motive. It was absolutely perfect in all of his ways. So, that's how Jesus lived. Barabbas lived an utterly sinful life. Jesus Christ lived an absolutely pure and perfect life. Second question, what did these two men deserve? Let's consider Barabbas. He was tried and convicted of murder and insurrection. What does God's law have to say about someone who commits murder? Well, we can go back even before the law of God. We can go back to the book of Genesis and hear God speak to Noah after Noah came out of the ark. This is Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is the word of God. Whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. You shed man's blood and you kill him? Then you ought to expect that your own blood is going to be shed because you've just killed somebody who is made in the image of God. That's no insignificant person that you just took their life. This person, even if they're an evil person, and all men are to one extent or another, even if he was like Barabbas, he was made in the image of God. And that image is still there. It might be marred, but it's not erased. God's image is still impressed upon the soul of every person. 
Now, if we were to look further in God's law, Leviticus chapter 24, we find in verse 17, very, very clear statement here. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. Is there anything unclear about that statement? None whatsoever. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. What did Barabbas deserve from his life? He deserved death. He deserved to be executed. Barabbas was not a prisoner who was going to be rehabilitated and sent back into society. Barabbas was on death row. Barabbas was going to be executed. He had already been tried. He had already been found guilty. The governor had already placed a seal on his death warrant, and the only thing left was to actually carry through with that sentencing and actually execute him. Well, what did Jesus Christ deserve? Let's turn to him. Look at Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. Leviticus 18, verse 5. God says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Now, do you see anything in that statement? What should a man receive if he keeps God's statutes and God's judgments? Life. Life. Barabbas earned death. Jesus earned life because Jesus kept all of God's statutes and all of God's judgments all the time. Um, Barabbas deserved death. Jesus deserved life. He's the only man who's ever done it. The only man in history who has ever deserved to live and his life was taken from him. Well, let's look at our third question. What did these two men receive? Well, we know the story, don't we? Barabbas was released. Jesus was crucified. And here we have, it's got to be the greatest injustice of all time. Wouldn't you agree? They released the wrong man. They killed the wrong man and they let go the wrong man. Try to imagine Barabbas in prison that day. He's been held in prison, and this prison is about 2,000 feet away from where Pilate is addressing the mob. Keep that in your mind. Now, 2,000 feet is a long ways, but I think if, if you have a big enough mob who's shouting loud enough, you'd probably be able to hear the shout. Okay? Now, with that in mind, I want you to go over to Matthew 27. Verse 21. Now, of course, uh, Barabbas would not be able to hear Pilate because he's only one individual. He's not going to be talking loud enough for him to hear 2,000 feet away. But perhaps Barabbas in his prison cell could actually hear this mob because there's thousands of people assembled and they're all shouting, they're screaming at the top of their lungs. So Matthew 27, verse 21, the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him! So what is Barabbas hearing in prison? Barabbas! Crucify him! That's what he's hearing. 
And so when somebody, the soldier, walks down that stone corridor with his key and puts the key into the gate to open it up for him, what is Barabbas thinking? I'm a dead man. They're carrying me away to execution. And he must have received the shock of his life when that man said, Barabbas, you're released. You're free to go. Get out of here. We don't ever want to see your face again. Someone else is going to die in your place today. Right? He would have been shocked. Man, what, 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 what did I do to deserve this? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. What did Jesus receive? We saw what Barabbas received. He received freedom. He received a, a pardon from the governor. He received a non-execution stay of a sentence. What did Jesus receive? Well, the very first thing he received was a scourging, a Roman scourging. Did you ever watch The Passion of the Christ? No? Okay. It might, you might be too young for that because it's pretty, pretty awful to watch. But I think it was probably pretty accurate as well. In a Roman scourging, many people would go crazy if they ever survived it. Many of them died in a scourging itself. It's, it shows something about the strength of Jesus Christ that he survived a scourging. Then he was able to carry a cross up a hill and then he was actually nailed to that cross. I mean, just to survive the scourging itself was a feat. You see, in a scourging, a Roman soldier would take this cat of nine tails, which is these leather thongs into which you would sew bits of bone or metal or glass designed to rip a man to shreds and they would bring that back they would strip a man naked and then they would lay that thing across his back and of course it would bite into his flesh when they pulled it back it's stripping skin off of the body so by the time 39 lashes have come and gone he, he looks like hamburger meat his, and that's exactly what you see in the passion of the Christ That was the very first thing he received. That, that's not the only thing. Then he carries his cross up the hill to the top of Golgotha. He is made to lie down on these rough timbers. And you know, we always show him in pictures with a loincloth. By all accounts, he was probably absolutely naked to shame him even further. They would have to have a couple of Roman soldiers, one just to hold him down, the other one to take a hammer and these spikes and not go through the hand but through the wrist so that he wouldn't wouldn't tear and fall off the cross so that he'd held in place and then they would lift up that cross beam and put it down into a hole and leave him there R Roman crucifixion was a very very cruel form of capital punishment today we've almost eliminated completely capital punishment from the United States and we've tried to devise ways to kill people that are very quick and very painless if we can find such a thing that's not the way they did things back in the first century they tried to devise ways of capital punishment so that it would linger and many people would go days and days before they'd actually die from a, from a crucif crucifixion because basically you're up on this cross and you'd eventually die of suffocation because you're hanging there and you're in such an awkward position you can't take a breath. In order to take a breath, you've got to push yourself up so that your lungs can fill with air and then collapse again. And you're pushing on this nail on your foot. You're, you're pushing up, taking a breath, collapsing again. 
And then after you get enough strength, you push yourself up again, and it's up and down, up and down, hour after hour, sometimes for days, until, until you finally can't take any more steps up, and you just die because you, you can't take another breath. That's why the Roman soldiers would break the legs of these criminals when they wanted to hasten the death. Because if their legs are broke, they can't push up, and they can't take a breath, and they will die. That's what crucifixion was like. That's what Jesus received. <laughs> the one man in all of human history who deserved life, that's what he got. And the one man who should have been executed, he went free. And you say, it's not right. You're absolutely right. It's not right. It's not just, is it? But it's gracious. The gospel, the cross is a scandal. The cross comes with God's grace all over it. It comes to ill-deserving, guilty people like you and me, like Barabbas. Let's, in conclusion, let's think about a few things from this story. You say, well, Brian, what does all this have to do with me? I'm not Barabbas. I'm not on death row. There's a, it has a lot to do with you. I believe all four gospel writers included this story because it is a, is a type. It's a picture of all of us. We are Barabbas. I could have called this message, I am Barabbas. And you can insert your name there. You are also Barabbas. Because Barabbas' story is our story. First of all, his name. What does the name Barabbas mean? Bar? Simon Bar-Jonah? What does Bar mean? Son. Abba. Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? Father. Bar Abba. What does that name mean? Son of Father. Well, that's a funny name. It's a strange name. Son of Father. Why would anybody call somebody Son of Father? Everybody's the Son of some Father. That doesn't set him apart at all. And I think that's the whole point. Barabbas, I believe, was intended to picture humanity. He's the son of a father, like everybody else in this world. We are all sons of our father, Adam. Adam is the father of us all. We identify with Barabbas because we are Barabbas. Secondly, his guilt. This man was a rebel, wasn't he? He was a rebel against the Roman government. Now, maybe we're not rebels against the Roman government, but we're rebels. Right? We are rebels. Have there been times in your life when God has made a clear command and you have violated that command? That's rebellion. No matter what the command was. We have rebelled against God's authority in our life. We've done our own will rather than His. Times without number, folks. <laughs> It's not a stretch to say that we can take the place of Barabbas. We are guilty. Not only was Barabbas a rebel, he was a murderer. Now, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I don't think anybody in this room probably has actually committed literal murder. But that's not the point. Our sins have murdered Jesus Christ. Yes. True. That's true. Yeah, and Jesus said, if you hate your brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. There's many ways you can commit the sin of murder. We have to take responsibility. There's the Holy Son of God dying on that accursed tree, 
And it's because of my sin that he's there and your sin. If there was no sin, there would be no cross. And so we have to take some responsibility for the murder of the Son of God. Not only that, he was a robber. He literally would take things that belong to other people and take them for himself. Well, we have robbed God. We've robbed God of his time because we are his servants. We've robbed God of his money, thinking that the things that we have are our own and we can spend it however we want to and do with it whatever we wish. We've robbed God of the talents that we have, using them for our own glory and to get people to look at us and esteem us and applaud us. We've robbed God. We are guilty like Barabbas. Notice Barabbas' sentence. Barabbas, though guilty, was set free. I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Okay. The Bible says people are under a curse. A certain kind of person is under a curse. What does a person have to do to be under this curse? All he has to do is not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them, to be under that curse. Abide. The word abide means to remain, to persist in, to continue in. A person is cursed if he does not continue to perform all of the things in God's law. Barabbas did not continue in God's law. Barabbas was under a curse. Folks, you and I are under a curse. We're born under a curse. We live under a curse until we're set free from that curse. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We were cursed, and that curse was removed because Jesus became a curse for us. He took our curse on himself. And when he's stretched out, hanging from that tree, our curse is put on him. And he dies in our place, taking our curse, and we're set free. He redeemed us. That word means that he set us free from the curse of the law. D.L. Moody once said, If a man falls over a cliff holding to a chain of ten links... How many of those links must break for him to fall to his death? One. How many laws do you have to break in order to be damned? One. Just one. Only Jesus continued to perform all the works of the law for his entire life. All of us have received the curse of the law. What about Barabbas' destiny? He was released. Barabbas was supposed to die on that middle cross that day. That's what he was scheduled for. Two thieves and Barabbas. But Jesus Christ took his place. The righteous took the place of the guilty. The guilty was set free. The righteous dies. 
Notice interesting thing about Luke chapter twenty or twenty-three. When they brought Jesus before Pilate, they accused him of insurrection, didn't they? <clears throat> they accused him of stirring up the people. That's insurrection. Jesus was innocent of that crime. Barabbas was actually guilty of insurrection. The one who is accused falsely of insurrection dies for the crime of insurrection. The one who actually committed insurrection doesn't pay for the crime, but he's set free from that crime. Barabbas was guilty, but Jesus pays. Now, my friends, tell me honestly, can you see yourself in Barabbas? Can you see, he just represents me. I may not have done exactly the same things Barabbas did, but I have not continued to perform all the works of the law. I have inherited a curse. I've broken God's law, broken God's standards, sinned against my Lord and my God. All that is absolutely true. But the pure beauty of the gospel of grace is that a substitute has come in. What did Barabbas have to do? Did, did he say, Judge, I'll clean up my life. Let me off for good behavior. I'll, I'll make restitution to the people I robbed, Mr. Judge. I'll do hundreds of hours of community service. Barabbas wasn't even expecting this. It was unsought. It was unbought. He didn't do anything to earn his release. And that's exactly the way the gospel comes to people. Exactly the same. It's pure grace. Pure. There's not an ounce of performance or works or obedience, or law-keeping mixed in with it. There's no merit at all in the gospel. It comes purely from the sovereign grace of God to us. I love that about the gospel. If it had any mixture of our merit in it, we would never know for sure if any of us would ever be saved. Because we'd never know if our merit was enough if we had earned or deserved enough for God to be merciful to us. But if it can come purely and 100% by the grace of God, that's good news. Because any of us can qualify for that, no matter how bad we've been. So if you do not know Jesus Christ today, my challenge to you is to become a follower of Jesus. Accept the payment that he made on that middle cross for your sin. Trust it. Repent. Turn away from the old life you've been living and determine that you're going to follow Jesus from now on. He is your king and God and treasure and savior. But if you are a Christian, which most of you are, I want to challenge you to worship your king today. Worship him. Worship the one who bought you, the one who substituted in your place, the one who didn't have to go to that cross. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. Jesus volunteered to do what, what he did there for our sakes, out of love. It was love that held him to those cross pieces. Worship the Son of God.
we ought to repeat the words of the holy angels in Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased or redeemed for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the holy, righteous Son of God who has saved us by His blood. Lord Jesus Christ, we stand before you this morning unworthy. Unworthy sinners, Lord. We have all violated your law. We have all been rebels, murderers at heart, robbers, and much more beside. And because of that, Lord, we inherited a curse. A curse that we couldn't get ourselves out from under no matter what we did. No matter how hard we tried, we were doomed. We were damned. We were going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. But, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, how we worship and praise you for being willing to come into this sinful, decrepit world and to receive the mockery and the shame and the blasphemy of men. And then, because of pure love, to take our place on that cross and to receive in your own person what we ought to have received so that God could treat us the way he ought to have received, treated you. And Lord, you were treated the way we ought to have been treated. Lord Jesus, all we can say is thank you. and Help us to live our lives to show gratitude and love to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.